Hello, I'm Dr. Laura. Welcome to my podcast, Where Work Meets Life. Today, we are going to talk about You Can Be Yourself Here, creating inclusive workplaces by using the psychology of belonging. I'm delighted to have BDS Dobson Smith here, the founder of Soul Trained, a licensed therapist, author, executive coach, speaker on leadership and growth, a Reiki master, all in the service of helping others grow and become who they really are. They are the founder and CEO of Soul Trained, an executive coaching and leadership growth consultancy. And DDS has multi-sector global experience. Over 25 years working across industries in a variety of senior leadership and executive roles, uh, really understanding different cultures, different organizations, and helping create cultures of belonging where people can be themselves and thrive. I've had the opportunity to read your book, You Can Be Yourself Here, which I'm delighted to talk about today. I think it is just a wonderful resource uh, for organizations and for human beings about creating cultures where people want to stay because they can be who they really are. Welcome to the show, DDS. Thank you, Dr. Laura. It's lovely to be here. And thank you for plugging the book. That's kind of you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Tell us about yourself, DDS, and what led you to focus on belonging in workplaces. Yeah, well, as, as you said in, in the intro, um, you know, I've, I, before I set up Soul Trained, I, I, I had a 25-year-long career in corporate America, corporate Europe, corporate Asia, um, in, in various degrees of learning and development, org psych, org development roles. And all of them really focused on the experience that employees have of being in the workplace. Um, and over the years, really developed the idea that, um, well, if you create a workplace where people can be themselves, the energy that they, that, that many people, um, many people like myself as, so I'm a, I'm a queer person. Um, I'm from the LGBTQ community, but for also people who are black or brown, indigenous, First Nations, people who are women, um, you know, we exist in a in a in a social milieu that that promotes and favors um, people who are are in white, straight, cisgender, male, able bodies, um, and so. If we have an aspect of our, our identity that doesn't, that isn't from the majority group, then we can experience this kind of societal pressure to perform and to be someone else in order to fit in. Um, and, um, and I really experienced that and I saw other people experiencing that. And as a psychotherapist, I think that there is some problems associated with that um, and um, and the energy that it takes for us to, I guess, dumb down, um, hide, uh, suppress aspects of our identity and our behavior and our personality in order to fit in. I had a theory that if we could, if people could work in a place where they didn't have to do that, where it was okay for them to be themselves, then that energy that would otherwise be taken up 
covering, code switching, suppressing would be available, would be available for the work, would be available for relationships, would be available for innovation. And so it's really partly my professional experience of, of, of working to create workplaces that are like that, and also my own lived experience of the ways in which I am both, I, my identity comes with privileged and is also marginalized that led to really the idea around focusing on belonging in the workplace. What a wonderful description. And I remember you giving the example in your book of one organization saying, can you be a little less gay? Um, and I can only imagine how that would feel to someone who's working hard, a high achiever, you know, just being who you are. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem, the problem with that was it, first of all, it was quite coded. It, they weren't as blatant as to say, could you be a little bit less gay? It was coded in words like, could you tone it down a little bit? And I was, I, it wasn't until I got to a senior position in the workplace where I built up the courage and it, it had happened throughout my career. And it wasn't until maybe five to seven years ago where I was like, had the courage, the bravery and the seniority to challenge what a person actually meant when they said, could you tone it down? And they said, well, you know, perhaps just be a little bit less gay. And I went, well, could you be a little bit less straight? And the person said to me, I, d I don't know, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I don't know how to do that. And I was like, exactly, exactly. You are asking me to be someone that I am not. And the answer is no. Yeah. And uh, having grown up, my, my eldest brother is gay and just seeing how much things have shifted and changed since the eighties, right? When he was seventies and eighties, when he was in high school and young adulthood and until now, but I feel we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go um, with with all diversity, uh, diverse groups. We certainly do. So thank you for bringing this book into the world. Now, what I wanna know next is there's the, these terms, equity, diversity, inclusion, we're using that a lot in, in workplaces today, thankfully. But what is belonging in particular, and how does it relate to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, so belong. I often find that you know diversity and inclusion are said almost as if they're the same word these days, um, and they're definitely said in the same sentence. But they are different things. Um, diversity is a fact. You know, when you when you look around in an organization, do you see people who are like you and do you see people who are not like you? The answer is either yes or no. And if the answer is yes to both of those questions, then you could probably safely say this organization has diversity. Inclusion is a behavior um, and inclusion in a set of behaviors. And it's. When I talk about organizational behavior, I mean policies, processes, practices, platforms that an organization uses and deploys, and also the way in which we act, react, and interact with each other. Um, and belonging is an experience. It is, a, it, it is the experience that we have when we walk into a place and we feel at home. 
Um, it's it and 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 so belonging is this experience of knowing that I am where I should be. Um, and we don't get to have that experience of belonging without inclusion. And we can't have inclusion without diversity. But it doesn't work the other way around. So you can have diversity in an organization, but that might not always lead to inclusion if the right behaviors aren't available. And it, therefore it doesn't always lead to belonging. Now, equity is something else altogether. And equity is a concept that recognizes that um, some of us are born in life, the fickle finger of fate, as I like to say, um, bestows upon us a body. And that body um, does, all, and, and it bestows upon us a sexuality, and it bestows upon us a gender identity, and it bestows upon us a number of other things that are not changeable. And some of those aspects of our identity come with privilege, and some of those aspects are marginalized and oppressed by the, the, the society, the societal milieu, the kind of the way in which we uh, interact and what is promoted, what is favored, what is one-upped and what is one-downed. And so um, equity, the concept of equity recognizes that and recognizes that um, treating everybody equally is not always equitable. So uh, when we think about equitable practices, it recognizes that sometimes and in some ways we should overtly reverse the systems of favoring and the systems of privilege so that those with oppressed or marginalized or historically excluded identities are given um, more of a chance than they would otherwise be given because of the, the social biases and the, and the systemic legal biases that exist. Thank you for that description. And I really like that belonging is an experience. It's, it's something that you, you feel like you're at home. And I, we can all relate to times when we haven't belonged. I mean, junior high comes to mind for most people. <laughs> but when you're in a marginalized uh, group, even, even more challenging. And I guess um, bringing this book to the world, I think, is a wonderful uh, step to talking about openly how we can be ourselves here and what organizations can do to create an inclusive uh, workplace using the psychology of belonging. It's a pocket guide, so it's it's not too heavy. Uh, it's very, very engaging. So who should read this book and why? Well, I specifically wrote it with um, with professionals like me in mind. So anybody that comes from the kind of HR world, but also anybody that is a founder, um, anybody that is leading or managing a business. And that's, that's, that's who was in my mind when I wrote the book. And so it's jam-packed full of what I hope uh, or at least what I intended to be accessible, practical insights and tools that a business can deploy in order to create um, a more diverse, inclusive um, space. And um, 
what I've found as the book has been released and people have been reading it is that it's, is that, I mean, I've had so many people tell me that they have felt seen by the book when they, when they open the book and they read not only my story, but the stories that I share of other people that, that, that it's, that it's felt very, very resonant for them. So while it was written very clearly for the HR community and for the CEO founder community, it's a book that's for everyone. It's a book that I think people will find something in there for them, no matter who they are. Fantastic. Now, what conditions are required? Just name a few of the top conditions to create a culture of belonging. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I like to do as well is is tease apart the difference between culture and climate for an organization. And I say that a, a culture or, a, or your culture is an articulation of the type of company that you want to be and the vibe that you want to create for your people. Whereas the climate is your people's lived experience of that culture. So in an ideal world, what we're trying to create is a climate of belonging so that people have a real lived experience of feeling as though they belong here. And I think the number one thing that will make or break your climate of belonging is leadership behavior, is the extent to which the people in positions of power pay lip service to the importance of diversity inclusion or whether they do the work. Um, I, I have often said that the climate of any organization will be shaped by the worst behavior you're willing to tolerate in your leaders. And because we copy, right? You know, human, human behavior is contagious and it is even more contagious from the people who hold positions of power. So, you know, there's tons of things in the book um, that, that, that will help an organization to create that climate of belonging. And you may as well forget all of them if you don't have a leadership team that want to show up for diversity, inclusion, and belonging. That is so well said. I agree. You can have the you know, the most brilliant uh, marketing descriptors, you know, processes, policies, but it, it's leader by leader starting at the very top. Right, right. And and one toxic leader can create toxicity throughout. And I've seen it so much in right. my career. Yeah. And, the, and the, the challenge that we have, Laura, is that it, that it, it isn't also just kind of openly toxic leaders, leadership behavior. I also want to acknowledge that we are a product of our social conditioning. We are all, you know, none of us alive today are responsible for slavery. None of us today are responsible. Well, actually, some of us are responsible for the subjugation of the queer community, but none of us are alive. None of us that made the laws that subjugated, that, that made being gay illegal are alive today. And yet we still live with those legacies and we are still impacted by what has happened in our past. And we are still socially conditioned into what is acceptable behavior for a woman, what is acceptable behavior for a man. And so 
those those social conditioning that social conditioning training that we receive as we as we grow up is sneaky right it hides in the background and it's really little things an, an example that i will share from a couple of years ago i was facilitating a group a, a, an executive team and they were t- they were they were doing some individual group work and they were by standing by some flip charts and i one of the groups didn't have a pen and i walked up to the group and and in the last moment caught myself handing the pen to the only woman in the group and immediately i was like oh there is something at play here where i'm expecting the woman to take the pen so at the very last minute i diverted my hand away and gave it to the most senior man said how about you take the notes here brian <laughs> and so those things those social biases that social conditioning is everywhere um and so it's not just about the openly toxic behavior that we have to pay attention to and we do it's also those moments those little moments where we the slip of the tongue or the foolish action that we take or the in, the seemingly inconsequential action that we take that has deep meaning for somebody else i got you so the the small nuances not just the big bold toxicity and it can be very subtle or very unintentional but with this negative and tough impact on on human beings i hear you so i i'm always interested in this topic of the great resignation or great reevaluation that's going on all around us and i wonder what your thoughts are on how this is changing people's relationship with workplaces and belonging at work dds yes I mean I I love that you called it the great reevaluation because I I recently wrote an article where I called it the great realization because I think what's happened over the last couple of years with everything that's happened in the world is that many of us have been asking ourselves some fairly deep existential questions um about many things are we with the person we want to be with are we living where we want to live um and are we doing something for in our professional career that we want to do and many people have said no to that question and they've changed you know they've voted they've changed their career and they've gone off on to do other things and many people have said actually yes what i'm doing from in my career does light me up and i really enjoy it so the next question they're asking themselves is am i doing it where i want to do it and and so more i i think more people are realizing that their workplaces if they if their workplaces don't or if their work isn't bringing them meaning and purpose and if they feel like they don't belong in their workplace they're voting with their feet and going elsewhere so uh, my message to hr leaders and to ceos and and leaders of organizations it isn't is is that there isn't a shortage of talent there's just a greater level of discernment amongst talent and and the organizations that are able to show that they have a commitment to diversity and inclusion and therefore belonging in the workplace and are able to create work that brings meaning and purpose are the people that are winning and it's as simple as that well put i just really appreciate how you explain 
things BDS. So thank you. It really resonates with me, and I say that honestly. Um, so how can creating a culture of be belonging then really help attract and retain talent? And how can organizations really do that intentionally? There's a direct correlation um, between two really important people metrics, and that is employee satisfaction and employee attrition. When one goes up, the other one goes down. And, in a, and, and, and what you want is a healthy level of attrition and a healthy level of employee satisfaction. Um, and um, it, it, very simply, if you feel like you belong somewhere, guess what? you're going to flip him well stay there right and so and so um and, and and also i'm sure you um and everyone listening has in their time walked into a party or a social situation and felt the vibe and gone i i don't belong here we it, this isn't a place for me to be um and 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 the same happens with workplaces and immediately when somebody interacts with a brand as a potential future employer, they are, they are receiving messages of whether they will or won't belong there. And so being able to demonstrate your commitment as an organization to belonging, to creating inclusive workplaces needs to be front and center these days in the way in which you put your brand out into the marketplace. And then, then what would be unforgivable is when new employee that, that has been attracted to come and work somewhere, that when they walk in, they don't walk into a, a cultural brick wall, right? That they walk in knowing and experiencing everything that they thought they were being sold through the employment brand. Um, and so, it, when when people can work somewhere where they feel psychologically safe, which is the experience of um, it not being expensive to be yourself. So therefore, I feel like I can belong here. I'm going to stay and I'm going to show up um, because um, I'm not watching my back. I'm not uh, managing who I have to be what kind of queer person I can be, what kind of black person I can be, whether I'm, whether I'm allowed to talk, uh, I'm allowed to talk about my kids or not at work because it's, you know, the, because of the environment, you know, um, all of that is, is really, is, is really what's going to help people go. That's where I want to work. And this is where I want to stay. Well put, thank you very much. My final question is about becoming someone who can make a difference around creating cultures of belonging. So an ally or an accomplice is something you talked about in your book as something that, that people can do. Can you share more about these terms and what they look like in practice? Yeah, sure. I think when it comes to allyship, there are, to me, there are four stages. And there's, you, the first stage is bystander. And when you're a bystander, you're a person who is present at an event or an incident, but not taking part. 
when you're the next stage is upstander. And that is a person who speaks or acts um, in support of an individual or cause, particularly someone who intervenes on, on behalf of a person who is being attacked, overlooked or excluded. And then you get into allyship and accompliceship. So an ally is a person from a non-marginalized group or a um, historically included, historically favored group who uses their privilege to advocate for those who have historically excluded identity markers. So anyone that is black or brown, indigenous First Nations, anyone that is female, anyone that is queer, anyone that is transgender, anyone that is disabled. And then an accomplice is a person from a non-marginalized group who uses their privilege to dismantle the structures that oppress an individual or a group. So an example of that would be um, simply um, uh, in an organization, taking a look at a recruitment process so when a, when, a, when a company says, well, you've got to hire the best talent, I'm like, yes, of course you do. Of course you do. And nobody wants to get a job if they're not the best person for the job, right? Um, but the question becomes is, how do you find the best person? Are you always looking in places where white middle-class men read uh, job adverts? Or are you going to historically black colleges? Are you going to places um, and putting job ads in places where um, people from marginalized or historically excluded groups are going to access the, those job ads? And so an accomplice would be a person that recognizes that we have to advertise the job in a number of places, not just these places, that we have to go and seek I don't know, entry-level positions from uh, non-Ivy League colleges, as an example. Really, really great example. And I think we we all need to look at how those of us with certain privileges we're born with can become accomplices in our organizations um, and with organizations we work with, and in my case, being a consultant. So thank you very much for this interview. I think we've covered a lot of ground with creating inclusive workplaces um, and, and your book, DDS. And I really want to thank you for putting this out into the world and using your lived experience and your professional experience and education to really make these concepts uh, clear and, and practical for people and approachable. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to our next discussion on being yourself at work to create better wellness. Uh, in two weeks from now, we'll be launching that episode. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others who may benefit. I really want to get uh, these topics and this important topic of, of belonging in, in workplaces out into the world um, to help make a difference. So please share, um, please sign up for my monthly e-newsletter on drlaura.live. I share a lot of goodies and there'll be a blog article, etc. And in the show notes, um, we'll tell you how to get your hands on this book. You can be yourself here. So thank you very much and stay well. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. 
I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded, Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.